I'm going to welcome the man himself, my old pal, Don Bennett, live from Seattle, Washington. And it's taken a second because we had a funny internet connection today, but... <laughs> there he comes. <laughs> There's, there was a big thing right in your face. So there we are. You know, sometimes I don't time it right when I'm introing my guest. I, I try to time it so as I'm saying their name, it's, they're, they're coming into the picture. But sometimes it doesn't work that way. So, so I blew my, my introduction. No, it, like it was you, probably me, Don. You, you played my, my fanfare, my intro music, and then I was out. <laughs> I was in the wrong place. Uh, no, man. We're here so now. good to see you. It's so good hey, to man, see you. You too. Yeah, buddy. Look at that cool Ringo kit behind you. You know, is that... Is that cool or what? I mean, that, that we were is... talking earlier. Is that also something that almost every drummer of our generation would in their life dream of having? And believe me, I am. I consider myself extremely fortunate every time I look at that. Then that, you know, that's why it's sitting in my office. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's pretty cool. That's pretty. This pretty actually, cool. this came so. If you want to really deep geek, yeah. this came, this is identical to Ringo's third Black Oyster set. So in other words, the first super classic set, the first yes. 22, 13, 16. Yeah. Uh, and what's, so it's the same year, everything. And it came from Leeds, Leeds, England. Have you ever heard of a shop called Kitchens of Leeds? No. Uh, no, I haven't. Anyway, it's it's a it was a really big, uh, it's it was a really big uh, music store chain. You know, there's probably four or five of them mm -hmm. in England during the '60s. And what you can't. And that's see, a '65, Don. Was that when that would have been? This is '63, '63 or '64. Okay. We need we need to get super class. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We need to get Gary Astridge on the phone really quick to confirm all this stuff. <laughs> Maybe Gary's watching and he'll 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 type in and go 64, you know. You know, he'll know every nut bolt and screw and yeah, the, the, yeah. the pattern of the black oyster. Yes. Yeah. Well, I want to share with everybody, I think you might remember this. I I uh contacted you back when I was working for Zildjian back in the might have been the mid-2000s. I think I'd been to your shop and I'd seen this kit during a visit there with Greg Bissonette or somebody or maybe yep, Steve Gatterson. That Gatterson's. was the first time you were there. That was the with, first. with Greg yep. Bissonette, yeah. And, and, uh, and I called you because we wanted to have a Ringo replica That's kit right. at Zildjian. And you, you got back to me like the next day. We spoke on the phone and you said, I think I might be able to put something together for you. And you called me back like really quickly and you said, I got something, it's, it's like... 65 or something uh the drum kit is amazing it's at zildjian today still, still there oh, all these great. years later yeah awesome. it, and it's you even got period correct a zildjian symbols which you would think at zildjian we would have but we didn't <laughs> <laughs> you know you had like old a's to go with it you had the correct hardware you had a buck rogers snare stand you had oh. the rogers memory lock maybe you put that on yourself but and you knew that i was a ringo geek and you said now do you want this with the ludwig rail or do you want the rogers the way ringo did it i said we got to have it the rogers you know so anyway thank you for that oh man that was great and uh you know what else i remember about that 
it was uh, shortly you know after I got there. Hey, Don, uh, the the drums are really cool, man. Every everything's really cool, but uh, you know, I uh, I think you forgot to put the tom mount in there. You oh, remember this conversation? I don't remember and, this. No. Okay, and it was like yeah, I'm pretty sure it's in there. He said, well, and you were really nice about it. He said, you know, I, I can just buy another one. It's okay. I can buy one. It's all cool. He said, you know, John, I know what's in there. <laughs> and so then you went back and you dug through all the packing stuff. And amongst all the packing stuff, there was the Rogers. Mount. Yeah. Yeah. Easily, which could easily, I, I, I vaguely remember this now and, and having a Rogers kit myself now. Yeah. That, that arm. It's kind of small, really, in the in the yes. scheme of things. Yeah, it could it could and, you know in the, the packing the way we got to pack <laughs> stuff. You know, you you know, you're packing stuff in the little corner of the box or something like that. Uh, anyway, I think that's that's what happened. It was just one of those things. Like when you started talking about that, that flashed back in my memory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool. You know, I really a Ringo set is really what got me started in the whole vintage drum world. I, you know, long before I even had the notion of even thinking about having a drum shop, I wanted a Ringo set. And so I started, you know, looking at the one ad and stuff and trying to find one. And, uh, you know, so a lot of times uh, in the hunt, I would find some other drum set that was maybe a really good deal. I thought, well, maybe I'll buy that. I could sell that to one of my students and that'll help me get the money to buy the one I want when it gets there. And that just went on and on. Anyway, that initial hunt for one of those sets is what got that whole, you know, buying and selling thing started and got me really into vintage drums and all the geeky details. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's uh, that's, that was, I mean, I never in a million years ever was remotely interested in having a drum shop. And that uh, that's just how that evolved. That's pretty cool. So so on that note, so when you started the drum shop, did it start as a drum studio first, as a teaching studio? Yes. Okay. Because so, the name is Don Bennett Drum Studio. And yeah. Right. And yeah, you're not the first person to ask that. And it just kind of evolved. So initially it was just me. Uh, and then, you know, kind of got to the point it was all booked up and there's a little more space. So I got somebody else to, uh, it was like I had more students than I can handle. So mm -hmm. next step is to get uh, somebody to help. And then, and then pretty soon he was all booked up. And then it's like, um, anyway, it evolved from that. Then, you know, of course, somebody said, well, you know, you got all these drums students in out here, you know, you should have some sticks and, and blah blah and heads and yeah um, and actually it was uh, Rick <sighs> he was oh. a Zildjian rep yeah Rick, uh, Rick Smith Rick Smith Rick Smith Rick, Rick Smith, Smith yeah. who literally just knocked on the door one day came in and said you know would you consider carrying he had Zildjian and Mapex yeah he said will yeah. you consider carrying uh, new stuff. And I said, no, you know, I just really, I don't, I just don't want to get into that. I have some used stuff and I just don't, anyway, he kind of just stayed on that. Yeah. Drop in every now and then finally got me to agree to uh, just getting a few Zildjian cymbals and a few Mapex drums, which of course, you know, 
there was this opening order that when I got it, I was literally <laughs> thinking, you know, these will be in my will, right? I think, <laughs> how am I, ever, how in the world am I ever going to sell 20 symbols? I mean, yeah, I mean, my kids will get them when they, <laughs> and when I die, you know, but uh, sure enough, you know, wow, those yeah. were gone in like a month and okay, maybe we'll try a few more. So Rick Smith. Rick Smith. Yeah. You know, I'm surprised yeah. I never came. I travel with Rick a lot back in those days and I, I guess I just never made it or maybe, maybe I just, for whatever reason, I didn't make it into the shop at that point, but I, but I think it was the early two thousands um, when I was there with Greg, I, I'm not, what year did you open as a, as a, as a retail shop? Do you remember Don? 1990. Well, I opened it. Yeah, I was, it was retail by then 1996. 96. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah, man. And, but and, then it might've, it might've been, then it probably was, I don't know, a year or two, something like that before I started carrying any new stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It started out just being uh used stuff. Got it. Yeah. And then it was I, a slippery slope. Well, it, it's, you know, what it's a, what a business, how you, you know, the way it's changed, obviously, since you opened oh. in 96 and kind of even, even yeah. without COVID, even before that, it was, you know, it had become so challenging, but we, we could spend three shows talking about all that stuff. I, I want to talk about, I remember coming to your shop the first time and seeing up above, you had the Ringo kit, you had, um, you had one of Alan White's kits, I think. Yeah. Uh, a Michael DeRozier kit. Um, yeah. You had all, and and that was kind of maybe the beginning of your celebrity, your sort of artist um, it, business. It it was. It was like those things sort of showed up. They came around, and I thought, you know, these are really cool. And I those mm -hmm. were things I wanted to own and possess, and I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to keep them. So I, then it just, I put two and two together. It'd be cool to put them up here where people could see them. Mm -hmm. And I mean, eventually those three or four sets that you saw, eventually that was like the entire perimeter of the store. You know, the, we had these shelves up above and the entire perimeter of the store were artist sets yeah. for my collection. And it was only when I sold the store that I started selling that stuff. And that's, yeah, has evolved to what I'm doing today. To a, to an incredible business, and and uh, in fact, um, Anthony um, uh, Amadeo had asked a question oh, right. that I was about to ask you, and you know, uh, one of the first um, maybe instances that I can recall of you, you know, like the the business side of it, like the Elvin Jones collection, for example, when right, you know, rest his soul. I know you were very close with Elvin. I was. Lucky to be close with Elvin and you know, Keiko. And just to be clear, I was not close with Elvin. I met Elvin twice. Um, but you know, Keiko, I became extremely close with. Yes. And um, really, now I, I honestly feel like I was close with Elvin because of everything that Keiko's told me. I mean, it's, yeah, I, I practice, yeah. it's weird. I feel like we were close friends because I know so much about him. Um, Wow. But no, dude, yeah, just to be clear, I, I was not okay. close friends with Elvin. I, I know, but I know exactly what you mean. And I, yeah, and that was an assumption I made. I guess I I just had thought that, you know, through the, over the course of time that, that, um, that you had become close with him and then, but so, but that's fine. And so Keiko trusted you, you flew out to New York to the apartment yeah, and you inventoried 
the entire collection, right? You went up to the apartment and you, that the, right. the warehouse. <laughs> yeah. And so what, and, that must've been unbelievable. Yeah. So you've seen that you saw the downstairs apartment. Yes. Yeah. Downstairs. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you know what a, uh, well, what a cluster it was. So did you see it? I apparently it got moved at some point. And at one point it was all very organized. And then it got moved, I believe is when it went into the downstairs apartment, it, it got moved, you know, there was some hurry and it was basically everything got shoved in yeah. the, uh, the downstairs apartment and it was chaos. I mean, like, you know, there was probably 10, 15 drum sets and it wasn't like they were all stacked up one, you know. There was like the bass drums in the kitchen, the floor toms in the bathroom, um, times, you know, 10 or whatever, how many sets. It was really a mess. Yeah. So it was me and Greg Keplinger, you know, really one of the pioneer snare drum makers, uh, who was, he was extremely close with Elvin and Keiko. So he's sort of the one that brought me into that whole scenario. Yeah. Um, Keiko had originally thought that, she could handle selling the stuff on her own. And she effectively had a garage sale. Mm. And after one day of that, you know, like guys coming in and, you know, like, you know, I'll give you 20 bucks for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Keiko was like, I mean, her life purpose was to take care of Elvin and make sure he was okay. And also that he got the respect that he deserved and that nobody tried to hurt him or scam him, which had happened many, many times. I mean, her, I mean, literally to her, the reason she was on this planet was to take care of Elvin. Yeah. So that stuff, you know, when somebody, you know, I'll give you 20 bucks for that, that kind of stuff, you know, deeply affected her. She, I mean, so very quickly, she discovered she didn't want to have anything to do with that. That was that just that that drove her crazy. Uh, uh, you know, God love her. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I'll tell you, you, you probably you you have known Keiko. So Keiko was Elvin's wife. Mm -hmm. You've known her for a long time. Um, I mean, I adore that woman, but she can be a very <laughs> difficult person to deal with. Um, but it's, you know, sometimes a person that, that difficulty is, could be rooted in like ego or greed or whatever. That difficulty was rooted in this massive respect and love for Elvin. And Absolutely. I mean, literally, she, she knew her, her purpose on this planet was to allow Elvin to be the genius he was. Yeah. And for him to not have to worry about setting yeah. his drums up, any of that stuff. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Don. And 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 I think the people that that know and understand Keiko realize that. That like in and you don't take anything personally yes. if ever there's a a time. And and you know, I I my initial relationship with her was um before Elvin, you know, he had left Zildjian in the eighties to play Istanbul symbols and that's we, right. We basically lured him back in the nineties and, uh, and Colin Schofield, who was the marketing VP and myself and Lenny DiMuzio, of course. Um, and, but 
but Colin and I would go see him every year. And Lenny came with us too, of course, a couple of times. But and we'd just go and see him at this club in Boston, the Regatta Bar. And and Keiko eventually kind of warmed to us, even though she knew, you know, she knew that, that he knew what was going on. She knew what was going on, and and <laughs> she, I think, she respected the fact that we had the respect for Elvin, and we and we were yes. sort of a younger regime that were just saying, you know, we're we're looking to. Um, design these symbols, these K sounding, you know, these, these K Constantinopoles and, and we'd love for Elvin to be involved in, in the research and so forth. And at one point she called me and it was 1997, 25 years ago and said, Elvin's ready to come back to Zildjian. Um, but it, it took a few years of, of going to see him every, every week, uh, sorry, every year when he came to Boston and, and it would just be a, he'd come out and see us and he'd be, he, you know, Elvin, he was just so, yeah. You know that smile, that so just went, yeah, ear to ear, and and a big giant hug, and uh, I, I'll quickly, I'll, I'll I'll make this quick. Which was which was always deeply sincere. Oh, if there's man. one thing, if yeah. what, one thing, and I mean, through yeah. that Elvin stuff, I met, I mean, literally hundreds of Elvin fans, like mega Elvin fans, and I've heard so many amazing stories. So I feel like I know them. Yeah, I've heard yeah. over and over all, I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of people's experiences where they say the exact same thing, same thing. you're saying right now. He was yeah. this deep sincerity in everything he did, uh, as yeah. well as the way he played. Same thing. It came exactly. I mean, that soul that that you heard when he played, that was that was his soul coming through. I mean, that was who he was. And, and uh I, the first time I met him, we were just talking about like life and, and things like that. And I, my kids were really, really young at the time, would have been around 1994. So they were maybe like seven and five. And I showed him pictures. And a year later, the first thing he asked me is, how are them babies? How are them babies doing? And, I, and I, I'm like, I can't believe you re- remembered, you know, like, uh, but he was so, uh, he was, and then, you know, once, once, you know, once we got to be I, friends, it was like, I, you're like in that club, you know what I mean? It was yeah. so special. Um, yeah. You but, know, before I forget, I don't know if you know, Keiko adored you. She um, absolutely adored you. You know, quite frankly, she was not really happy with some of the people at Zildjian, but, you know, people, Oh, Johnny. Oh, he's so good. She's a good man. You know, oh, man. She, I mean, she would go, she would gush about you. That, oh, I, I seriously, I'm going to, I'm going to tear up hearing <laughs> that. Thank you. That, that's, yeah, we, you know, I mean, even after I, I, I remember, um, I, I don't know if it was after I left Zildjian, but it was, it was certainly after Elvin died. Um, I, I went to the house, to the apartment a couple of times and, you know, I was still in touch with her and she would insist on, on cooking for me. And wow. yeah. And I, and, and she wouldn't take no for an answer. And I, and right. I would say, Keiko, let me take you to, to lunch somewhere. Oh no, 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 no. You come, you come over here and I'll cook for you. And there was one time that, that I went there when Elvin was still alive and he had done a, a, a clinic for us at Manhattan school of music. And we went to his, it was done at like, four in the afternoon we went back to, to the apartment and um and <laughs> you know this was like this was this was when like if every day of my job could have been like that i'd still be doing that job today but <clears throat> we drank champagne 
Keiko made this incredible, like this is sounding familiar. Yes, yes, yeah. (laughs) We're drinking. We started with champagne. (laughs) Red label, Moe red label, label by any chance? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. They had a whole bunch of it down in the drum room. Yep. Yeah. And then we we moved from that to some Chianti for dinner. But we started with the champagne. It was a warm day. Had the windows open. It was really nice. Listening to music. And I'm sitting there and Elvin's going like, I'm sitting here with Elvin Jones and we're talking about, you know, John Coltrane and we're talking about Miles Davis or we're, you know, we're talking drums and, and uh, it was unbelievable. And then Keiko made this delicious dinner with shrimp and, and uh, we're drinking. Like, amazing the, cook. Yeah. The amazing cook. It was like, oh, what a dream. And then I'll just say this. I'm staying at the Mayflower Hotel down Central Park West couple of miles walk and I, I thought I would just walk back to my hotel afterward. It was a warm night. I kind of needed the exercise, if you know what I mean, just after all yeah. that. And she insisted that their driver take me back to the hotel. And she like, you know, this they had like a driver on call in this white limo and took me down Central Park West to the to the hotel. And I'm like, this is amazing, you know. Yeah. Anyway. I'm I'm sitting in Elvin's limo. <laughs> cruising down Central Park West. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm the coolest guy on the planet right now. Yeah, I, I know. I know. It was, uh, that's the stuff that dreams are made of, though. You know, it's, oh. and, and okay. how lucky were we, you know? So I, here's, uh, then I have to ask you. Okay, so I was never at their apartment while Elvin was alive. Um, but, so I was probably there in putting that whole transaction together maybe three, four, five times. I can't remember. Um, but Greg Kepler, initially Greg Keplinger and, I, Keplinger and I would spend the whole day and it was summer and did I just lose you? No, I'm still here. Yep. It's, oh, you there me? you go. Okay. Yep. yep. I think I just hit something on my uh, keyboard. Um, it was summer. We spent the whole day down in the basement like like archaeologists <laughs> digging through all this stuff. I, I wish I had pictures to show you, but I mean, well, you you saw it, it was like floor to ceiling yeah, drums yeah. in the whole thing. And it wasn't just up against the walls. Like, you know, there could be like three drum sets were thick. Um, I mean, it was a monumental job to go through all this stuff, organize it, catalog it. No AC. It's New York. Yeah. That's hot. Right. Uh, you know, the windows <laughs> open. Um, you know, we got shirts off. I mean, we're doing hard physical labor lifting this stuff up. That went on all day. Then she said, Okay, well, you guys work long enough. Come on up and and uh and uh, let's we'll have dinner. So dinner, you know, uh went for about five hours. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And Keiko, at the time, she had sort of become a shut-in. And I think she said she hadn't, I can't remember, she hadn't been outside of her apartment for a very long time, whatever it was. Um, She hadn't seen anybody for a long time. You know, the champagne's flowing. And quite frankly, that uh, 90-pound woman who was probably 20 years older than me, drank me under the table you know she didn't she wasn't batting an eye and i could barely make it to the door when we were done uh, and yeah which was just you know there's another thing i love about her just amazing i know yeah uh, i do i know what you mean oh that's uh, awesome yeah uh, 
So she, her Elvin stories just kept going, and, and I, I'll never remember them. But the thing was, you know, there's a lot of drinking going on, and it just required a hundred percent focus yeah. because just her her English is is yeah. uh, sort of like her hybrid blend of English, and but it was just amazing. I mean, she, she'd be telling me stories about you know playing for presidents and these you know bizarre situations they get themselves into you know in some tiny european town and and yeah anyway it's just extraordinary it's extraordinary sitting there listening to that i know you've experienced it well i i say i know i I just think it's so cool to hear you tell these stories don and and i was just going to say i remember um at a point and it was probably the same for you because you spent a lot of time with keiko that you begin to um and and this is i want to say this delicately because she you know her english is not her first language obviously japanese is so um but she speaks you know she she speaks possible certainly fine english but it's it's fine it's a bit high it's a bit of a hybrid as you say and i remember and and it's fast that's the other thing it's yes very fast yeah and again when it's when there are when she's carrying on five different conversations so the whole thing and again, the little champagne involved there, it just, <laughs> it was, it had, I had to like harness every bit of attention I could to stay on track. And just plus everything, really everything good. she's saying is an absolute gem, you know, you know, I mean, I think that's the reason we are in this business is just for the stories mm-hmm. and everything she's saying is priceless. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. And I, I was going to say, I remember like realizing after like, a, f- a few times being with those guys that I could, I could actually really hang in there in the conversation and, and really understand it. And, um, and just, it's, it's funny, like, you know, just, just not feeling the least bit like I was missing anything, but like you say, you'd be, okay. you'd be very focused, which you'd want to be anyway, because the stories were so fascinating, whether it was Elvin telling the story or, or Keiko and, um, Man, that's great. And 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 so from that, I want to segue and we're going to talk about our friend Charlie Watts because Okay, wait. So I have one question. Yeah. Before we segue. Okay. So you were there. You were sitting at the table several times. You were eating, drinking. At some point, you got up and you went to the bathroom. And I, to, I so yeah. okay. So did you go into the bathroom and say to yourself, I am peeing in Elton Jones toilet. (laughs) Oh my God. I probably did. (laughs) You know what? Because I was with Greg Keplinger that night and we, the next morning we're just talking and I can't remember if I said it or he said it, but it was like, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I was doing. I was doing it like, oh my god, uh, that's the stuff and, we that's we, that, yeah. that's the stuff we all think about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I know I've asked other people because again, I told you I've met a million people who who have been close with Elvin, and I've asked them, and they all go, yes, I did. Yeah. Oh, that's the shit, awesome. The shit. 
the shit that we live for, right? You make a whole, that's, that's like in your career highlights. That's, that's right. Like, yeah. That's Damn right. It. And I pissed in Elvin Jones toilet. <laughs> <laughs> I hope nobody takes that as disrespectful, not disrespectful. It is with, it's extremely endearing to me. Um, yeah, absolutely. Don't take that disrespectfully. It's, it's not that. No, I think anybody watching this show understands exactly what you mean, Don. It's 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 meant with all the respect and love. Totally. I was going to say this is going to be one of the most um funny, interesting, amusing episodes of oh, all the ones oh, I've good. done. So. Um anyway, okay, so we I'm should probably gonna, talk about some serious stuff. <laughs> it's going to segue to the Charlie thing where you had this great idea of of uh and and I'm going to have you talk about this in a minute but i want to see if you can see my either of these drum kits the idea of putting your key on your rack tom i love this right the first time i saw the rolling stones movie ladies and gentlemen the rolling stones i saw that in 1974 and during that movie i saw charlie had a drum key on his 13 inch rack tom and at the wise old age of 13 years old i adapted that um that method of putting that key on the, um, that practice. Oh, wait, so you've been doing that all the time, all the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. That's when you awesome. said that, I was like, Oh, that's great. I love it. I remember you saying, yeah, I've always done that. Yeah. Wow. Um, but, but, and, and we're going to talk about that, but I, but I want to say, uh, I wanted to mention, was that how you first met Charlie was through Elvin's collection? Like, cause yes. he bought some of the pieces, right? Yeah. Yes. And, um, you know, that's kind of, my uh this whole goofy career i have has evolved is uh rich king who yeah. had uh you know rich rich I mean, sure. rich is like one of the early pioneering video or not video uh vintage drum guys um i can't remember how he came to know charlie but he, he had a, a relationship with him well, and I can so, tell you, I, I had Rich, I had him on my show last year, and quickly, um, it was through Chooch McGee, Charlie's former drum tech, right? For Sadly, many no stories was. about him. Yeah, Chooch, I think had had. Well, Rich can best explain it, but I think they Chooch had tracked down Rich to get some parts and some things for Charlie's drums, and that became their go-to guy for vintage Gretsch drums okay. and and Got Rogers it. parts and things like that. Yeah. So got it. Yep. So um I got all this Elvin stuff and I knew Charlie was a, a big jazz fan and I'd seen him mention many times Elvin and the you know the reverence he had for Elvin. Yeah. And so, you know, I took a shot. I called I called Rich and said, you know, do you think Charlie would be interested in this stuff? And uh, he said, well, you know, he probably would. So uh, let me reach out. And, you know, of course, you know, it's Charlie Watts. And so it's not like you pick up the phone and say, C-Dub, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it has yeah. to go through some channels, uh, yeah. particularly back then. It had to go through several channels. And when it finally got to Charlie, it was, yes, absolutely. I'd be interested in seeing that. And so it worked its way back down the chain, which to Rich to me. Uh, and uh, 
we arranged to meet at the Wachovia Center uh, in uh, Philadelphia. I think that's where, yeah, Philadelphia, mm -hmm. um, where the Stones were playing. And, you know, again, it was, of course, uh, Don, um, would you mind if you could, would you mind coming to Philadelphia? We'll be there, we'll be close by. Um, would you mind coming and maybe we could meet before the show? I'm like, are you kiss my arm? Are, yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, and so you know, we have like full backstage at the Rolling Stones again. I mean, who hasn't dreamt of that? I mean, we're talking, you know, on the stage, literally standing on the stage at Charlie Watts' drum set at the Wachovia Center. Um, you know, back in Charlie's dressing room. Uh, I mean, it's just like, are you kidding? Yeah. And Charlie, yeah. would it be all right if you came? <laughs> anyway, so I'm, in that picture you saw, that's actually um, right off the stage. And uh, what we did, we brought all this stuff from Cake. There it is. So we brought all this stuff from Keiko's house uh, and set it up out on Charlie's flight cases. You see the flight cases there, which yeah. by the way, uh, Don McCauley saw those pictures and he goes, I recognize those cases, which <laughs> he's still using. Yeah. Or was still using. Um, and may, I don't know, maybe they're still using them for Steve Jordan. But uh, anyway, so we set all this Elvin stuff up there. You can see in the corner, there's a Elvin, that's a Toma Bell brass snare. Right there. Yeah. Yep. And wow. then, uh, Right kind of under Charlie's arm, you can see a little bit of a maple Gretsch snare that yep. uh, right there. was like custom. It wasn't custom made, but it was, it was hot rotted for him by the guys at the uh, professional drum. Yeah. I know it was the professional percussion center in oh. New York. Okay. Yep. Um, then there is the uh, olive satin flame 18 inch. I mean, come on, talk about, is that a Holy Grail item? That's yeah, Elvin's 18-inch like Gretsch bass drum. Uh, which, you know what, maybe yeah. maybe right now today we could solve a decades now long mystery. Okay, so when Elvin passed, yeah. uh, there, they needed to get some... Uh, cash immediately you know you know someone passes and there's some immediate bills so they decided to quickly sell a few of his items um, and what happened they so they chose now what was it they chose one drum set that they would sell well what happened is they took however the shuffle happened they took parts of two different drum sets mm. and sold them together. It was uh, some of the yellow uh, Gretches that yep. Charlie ended up buying eventually. And uh, this bass drum, or no, I'm sorry, not this bass drum, the toms that go with that. So those got put together. And instead of being a set, they weren't a set. They were just odd individual drums. Right. They didn't okay. sell for very much. It was really heartbreaking to Keiko once she found out what happened, you know, 
what should have sold for a lot of money sold for yeah. very little. Um, anyway, so I was able with the yellow drums. So she still had half the yellow drum set there, and uh, and this bass drum from the olive set. Uh, and so I was able to track down the guy who bought the other yellow drums, the yellow Gretches, and buy them back from him and put that set together, which Charlie eventually bought. You know, which okay. is, you know, it's great that, you know, he bought it. But really, ultimately, the what was great about that is that it, uh, you know, that set was reunited and it remains, well, it's still part of Charlie's collection. So I hope somebody out there knows where those other two toms went. They were sold in a uh, Guernsey's auction. Okay. And I, you know, I contacted them and they, the people at Guernsey's relayed the message to the buyers. And I got a response from the yellow Gretsch guy, but not from the, the all of satin flame guy. So, yeah. So, the, so the two missing drums are all of satin flame. Um, 12 and 14. 12 and 14 toms. I saw the yellow drums. I don't remember seeing the all. I saw the yellow drums when I when I was there. I feel, I feel like the last time I was there when Elvin was still alive was either 20 years ago, 2002 or 2003. He died in 2004. Um, in fact, gosh, you know what? Today could be the anniversary. This would be freaky. Uh, a crazy freaky coincidence. I think May 24th could be the coincidence. If anyone wants to look that up while we... Uh, while we wait, geez. Anyway, but you know um, what? I think you you might be right. I well, we'll find out soon enough. We'll find out. It's right around this time for sure. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. But but that's very interesting, Don. I did not know that those that the kid had been split up, and then you actually tracked down that missing Tom, so that Charlie. I just thought Charlie bought the set complete um, from Keiko, or you know, via you. But I, I didn't realize you actually. Did all that? No, it was it was uh, it was quite a process. Yeah, um, man, I felt like a, de- a detective. But what a what a great service you did for both of them, you know, for for Charlie and for Keiko and um and for Elvin, you know, rest is oh soul. yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I trust man. me, I feel. I mean, I feel so extremely fortunate for that uh, for that opportunity, and I mean, I mean. That has been absolutely pivotal in my career, the Elbin stuff, because through that, I mean, shoot, I met, well, I met Charlie Watts. I mean, if nothing else came out of that, that would be monumental. You know, I yeah. met uh, Steve Jordan. I mean, uh, Benny Greb, all those guys bought pieces of Elbin stuff. But, and then, you know, hundreds of other really great people you might not have know their names, but really great people and people that are friends of mine now. So I feel extremely fortunate for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we're getting word from many people who are watching that it was May 18th. So, Ah. um, close, definitely close. close. Thanks everybody for the, uh, for confirming that I knew it was 2004 and I knew it was around this time. So it was six days ago, uh, would have been the anniversary date, but, um, you know, he's, I, I know we all talk about this with, with friends that we've lost, you know, Charlie and, and, uh, but you know, I, I definitely feel Elvin's presence, you know, when I do certain things 
and you know whether it's listening to music or um, just remembering a certain like you you know you remember a certain thing and then and then it just brings it back to Elvin. I go, oh yeah, I remember the time that um, you know we went to this place and um, he was just such a thrill to be around. You know, his energy was like it was like Armin Zildjian, like you knew in that moment what you were it was a very special thing that you were experiencing and 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 that was the good thing was that it it didn't take till after they were gone to realize it like you knew while you were sitting there at the table with those guys like holy shit i'm like you said i'm peeing in elvin's bathroom like (laughs) i'm really you know i'm really here with with these guys you know with these giants and you know louis okay so the same way so you just mentioned armand okay so uh from Keiko, Armand was another person that Keiko adored. Yeah, uh, was it was that noticeable to you? Absolutely. Yeah, they. Uh, yeah, and he adored she, them. Yeah, uh, he, you know, and uh, she talked about you know how the whole uh, you know when Elvin left Siljan, it was like heartbreaking for for uh, for Elvin. But you know, and I can't. I, it's one of those stories that I can't remember everything. I can't remember what the 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 details were, why why that happened. Um, but anyway, it was heartbreaking for it was you know like cutting off your brother or something like that. I mean, it's literally like that. But what she she would always talk about is you get those two together, <laughs> and it was just like it was it was insane. They were just like two little kids, and they. Elvin, okay, now tell me, you were probably yeah. there. Okay, so she would always talk about Elvin would block out a day to go to Zildjian to pick out symbols. Yeah. Okay, and she said what would happen is they would go out in the symbol warehouse, and Elvin, you know, he's she would say it would take him twenty minutes to pick out yeah. a, a set of symbols. Yeah, he was, you know, he wasn't one of these guys that. Uh, he could tell, you know, with one tap of his thumb, if this is it or if it's not. And just it took him 20 minutes. And then he and Armin <laughs> would disappear into the lounge. Yeah. And they would drink all day. Champagne. And you, yep. And you could and you could be out in the hall hearing this this hysterical laughter. And I mean, you know what Elvin sounds like when yeah. he laughs, that just yeah. amazing laugh. And Armin. And yeah, she she just said it was it was just like this awesome thing. I mean, it it made her so happy just thinking about those two little kids uh, in that room shooting the shit for uh, yeah, and just enjoying themselves. They had they I had just, similar yeah they did they had similar laughs like a real sort of baritone sort of you know roar of a laugh and I remember the the first time I experienced what you're talking about with Elvin coming to pick out symbols it was when he came back and came up uh, for a couple of days in 1997 it was the springtime and and it was it was and we had really kind of prepared for you know like we basically shut down the whole um you know like i i was like in the lounge all day i was like you know i'm I'm not going to be taking phone calls somebody with elvin and going to be at his beck and call in the the drummer's lounge and paul okay so let me ask you real quick so were were you at Zildjian when Elvin was there before? No, or was this no. like your first exposure to him? This is my first exposure to him coming in. Yeah, this, so okay. this was the after he'd come back and 
So you've been sort of doing these courting things like you're talking about for for a Um, few years. And then it was finally like, he's going to, he wants to come up and, and talk about everything and he wants to come back. So he, we, Oh, fantastic. So they, they came up and, um, from New York and, and, here I was thinking, you know, we're going to, we're going to spend the whole day with Elvin picking out some new symbols. And, and it was like about maybe like you say, 20 minutes, maybe not even that Don. He, he was like, he's like, these, these all, these all sound good. These are, I, I could use any of these. These are, you know, we sort of put aside what we thought he'd like. Uh, John King was in the mix as the, as the product specialist and Paul Francis. And, and they're probably and, all waiting like, yeah, yeah, like just lab like, technicians exactly, waiting to lab. Yeah. Like, what do we got to do? We're, and and uh, and I and I will say, you know, I I knew um, he liked to drink. He, he liked a good cold Beck's beer, so I'd gone out and got a six okay. pack of Beck's and had it in the refrigerator there in the lounge. And he's having he was so you know he's like having a cold Beck's while he's picking out a couple of symbols and and he was done. And then it was like let's go sit and hang and and we went up to Armin's office and we just sat and, and just had this great rest of the afternoon. We went and had a great oh, dinner that night. And um, yeah, I mean, it was just a magical, magical time with him. Okay. What do you remember? Cause Keiko would always say she, he could just tell by tapping his thumb, you know, on the edge of the symbol. Um, and I, I you know, he would just was, pick up a symbol and he would, he would hear the, he could hear the tone with his thumb yeah. and that's all he needed to do. You know, he didn't need to spend, 45 minutes comparing the bell of this one, the bell, of this one. And the exactly. It, and I, and I think he knew tell. to, by tapping at the weight, he could, he could, he could, you know, and I think, I think those of us that, that do this, um, yourself included, you know, you can pick up a symbol that, you know, right away is maybe just going to be too heavy. You're just going to kind of right. go, yeah. if it's going to, if it's just a little slow to respond, if it's a little too high and you're going to go, yep, yeah, that's not. And I just feel like that was his thing. It was, he was looking for a, lighter sounding thinner um and and honestly there were only a few he still had a lot of older k's that he still had and older zildjans that that he was still using so so it wasn't a difficult thing to get him you know we, we weren't looking last thing any myself or anybody would say to him is um gee elvin we'd love you to have some symbols with some big shiny logos on them you know it wasn't okay right it, it wasn't that it was like let's just have you comfortable being back with the, you know, with the company and, and I would send stuff when they needed it with other drum kits and other parts of the world. So they knew they always had stuff where they needed it, right. uh, that kind of support. And, um, and just having them back in the family, you know, was huge. Hey, you know, I'm, have you noticed this? I mean, I had the, uh, the opportunity with, you know, having a drum store for a long time. There's guys, not unlike Elvin, who, can find something in a symbol. So it's, in other words, they adapt themselves to the symbol as opposed to try and find the perfect symbol that does everything the drummer wants. They, the drummer, listen to the symbol, they interact with the symbol, and they quickly understand what this symbol can do and can find the best uh, you know, the best that symbol has to do. I, it's was one of the most memorable and valuable experiences, family drum shop and going through this process with, you know, some really extraordinary drummers. I remember, I remember watching Matt Chamberlain do this with, you know, symbols that 
have been sitting around for a year yeah. and without we're kind of dogs. And all of a sudden he's doing something and it's just like glorious. I remember <laughs> Terry Lynn Carry Terry Lynn Carrington coming in and same thing, sitting down. It's like everyone's going, What's that symbol? You know, guys lining up, wanted to buy it. You know, something that was there for 60 bucks and nobody <laughs> would look twice at. It's something I've noticed with great drummers. They can find what a cymbal or drum has to say. And as opposed to trying to tell it what to say. Yeah. That's anyway. Great. No, that, you know what? I've, I've, you're absolutely right. And I don't know that I've ever heard anybody, at least here on this show, explain it that way. But you're out, like... Absolutely, like Steve Gadd is another person that can that can do that, and Peter Erskine that can, you know, cymbal players that can that can extract um, Jeff Hamilton again, another you know somebody that can that can, like you say, understand the cymbal well enough to know I'm gonna if I play it right here, and that's 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 a, a I've had so many of these conversations with guys like Peter and Steve about how playing a ride symbol is in many ways sort of a lost art with people in terms of yeah. knowing all the sounds you can get from one symbol um, and not relying on three more symbols to get sounds you can get out of that one symbol. Right. Whether it be crash, yeah. bell, um, shoulder, you know, um, washiness or just a more stick sound, you know, just in the way you play that symbol. Uh, it's, yeah. It, to me, it is the perspective, again, of letting the symbol do what it wants to do as opposed to trying to make it do what you want it to do. And yeah. you have yeah. to, you know, I mean, I guess it comes down to listening um, and you, you just have to pay attention to what this thing has and how it reacts and how it responds instead of trying to, what do I got to do to make this thing you know, sound the way I want it to sound like, yeah, you know, some yeah. symbols aren't going to sound like the way you want them to. You got to go and see what they have to offer. That's right. And, and, and this is like another conversation too, but, but part of that kind of an offshoot of that conversation, Don is, and you know, this from being a retailer is, is then trying to get a symbol to do things. It's never going to want to do like trying to get a thin crash right. to sound like a 20 inch medium crash. And, right. and overworking it to the point where you crack it and you don't understand that, yeah. you know, it's like you, you're, you're not going to get that symbol A to sound like symbol B just by hitting it harder or. Uh, um, exactly. You know, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so let's. A, let's, a great, um, a great lesson to be had there. Yes. Yeah. And also Dave Abrazis, another Seattle boy is watching. And, Dave, uh, how you doing? Hello. Yeah. Um, Dave is going to be on this show eventually. I keep I'm going to I keep trying to pin him down. He's elusive, but I'm going to have him I, on here. I will be there. So I went to go see. I mean, this tells you a little bit about Dave. Um, I went to go. Uh, he may remember better than me. I'm going to say 90s. I went to go see Kenny Aronoff do a clinic. I think this would have been before I had a shop, probably, because hmm. otherwise it probably would have been in my place. Um, and Dave, who at the time was like, I mean, he's a mega freaking rock star. I mean, he was the drummer in Pearl Jam at the at the height of that. Dave came down to check out Kenny Aronoff. I mean, I can like, see that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, we ended up, the three of us ended up going out and having, how, funny how this, this, uh, this <laughs> having some drinks 
scenario just keeps <laughs> popping up everywhere. <laughs> it's like a reoccurring theme. It is. Uh, someplace down on close to the water, I can picture what it looks like um, down on Lake Union. But uh, yeah, man, we just, we had just like a really awesome time. I mean, really there's, well, I guess I, I knew Kenny, but neither of us had met Dave. And, but it's just like, it's that drummer thing that comes up over and over and over. It's like, boom, we're like best pals and on the same wavelength and in our zone for, I don't know, we were there for a long time. Uh, we probably closed the place. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, hey, Dave, I don't know if you remember that, but I remember it uh, very, very well. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah. I And I, I, I keep, keep, Dave, I keep hearing people saying you are coming back to Seattle soon. This is something I've been hearing. Um, so I hope that happens. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. You got to come over to come see my studio. And he's saying he's going to be on the show too. Yeah. He has to come oh, see great. your studio. So, so let's talk about Charlie too, because this show, uh, yes. um, we're watching, we're, we're live today on May 24th, but it will air. A week from Thursday, June 2nd, which is oh, Charlie's 81st birthday. Yes. Heavenly, his, his heavenly birthday, June 2nd. And you had this great idea of, of, um, of, of doing a video and getting everybody to put their key on their rack, Tom. So um, how, should we, how should we best communicate that? Do we want to we'll talk about it here? We'll put a video out. We'll have people take pictures. and Yeah, let's start it here. Initiate what is going to happen yeah. and then uh, get a little bit of the backstory. I don't think everyone knows the whole Charlie Watts drum key thing. Um, and then, yeah, we just, that's what will happen. It, it'll, uh, that's perfect. This will be aired on, uh, on June 2nd. Yeah. Great. Great. And we could, we could do, we, we could post the pictures, you know, I have this Facebook page, Charlie Watts appreciation group that a lot of people that watch this show, I know are, mem are, are members of that group. And we could put pictures on that page. We could put them on your page, on my page, anywhere we want. But the uh, idea is they go everywhere. They go uh, everywhere. Yes. Put on. Yes. Um, we, uh, and again, it's kind of getting out of my, complete understanding of social media and how all that stuff works. Uh, but thank God I have Shane Peck who helps me out <laughs> with this stuff. And, and I just put it into his capable hands and it appears Great. everywhere. It's supposed to be, uh, um, Good. but he did teach me about hashtag. Um, <laughs> so uh, here's the deal. Uh, so, you know, when, when Charlie passed, um, you know, it really hit me like a ton of bricks. I, I saw it coming a little bit mm. um, just because there were some communications going back that, you know, sometimes you can kind of read between the lines and think maybe something's not, you know, quite the way it should. But man, when that happened, it was just like, that rattled my foundation. Mm. And it took me a long time to really sort of get, um, to understand why, I mean, why this was so fundamentally difficult and I finally came to the, to the realization that Charlie Watts and the Rolling Stones are permanent uh, you know I have not been alive and aware 
in a world that did not contain the Rolling Stones. You know, I mean, you know, well, actually the Rolling Stones, I mean, I was like three years old when the Stones uh, first formed, but, you know, I wasn't listening to music, obviously. Uh, sure. So Were you born in like, 19 In my world, 59. 59, okay. Which I think we're pretty close, aren't we? Yeah, I was you born in 60. Yeah, so we're, okay. we're really so the same age. Right yeah. there. Yeah. Speaking of which, Charlie and I have the same birthday, June 2nd. Which, Holy smokes. Uh, I did. So it's your yeah. birthday next week. Yes. Yes. I have I have uh, the same birthday as Keith Richards, by the way. Just I have to Oh. Say no, I'd rather is, have your birthday. Know, I'd rather have yours. <laughs> me too. But, man, I'll tell you, if, uh, <laughs> if I could have, if the second choice, that would be it. So- Wow, that's funny. That's oh kind of, uh, that's weird. Can I just tell you one more thing? And then I want you to tell this story. Yes. But you also, you might already know this, share the same birthday as Vic Firth, the great Vic Firth. Yes. June yes, 2nd. that's right. My father-in-law. Yes. Um, and, they, and I told both of them, they didn't realize it. I said, you know, you guys have the same birthday. Oh, really? And they, they sort of bonded on that one at a, at a Stone show years ago. But anyway, yeah. continue. I kept, I kept wanting to have sort of the, the opportunity in one of our conversations with Charlie to tell him that, but it was just without, you know, the, the, the right time never really came out. It would have been, you know, just like interjecting where it didn't belong. So I never told him that. I think, I think Don McCauley told him, um, but you know, it's like, like whatever. I mean, I'm sure Charlie would go like, Oh, you know what he would say, <laughs> what he would say to you is, because it's the same date as the Queen's Jubilee. Um, oh. it's, she'll be she'll be celebrating this year will be her seventieth um, year on the throne. Okay. And, and he and I remember him telling me when I, I said something about June second, and he said, you know, that's the that's he said it wasn't the same. I wasn't born the same year, but it's this it's the anniversary of the Queen, the Queen's coronation or something. So he's very proud okay. of that. He was very proud of having ah. his birthday the same as the the day the queen was ah well see i i and you know in true charlie fashion it'd be like you know like so what if it's my birthday i mean <laughs> who could possibly give a rat's ass about that um <laughs> you know it would you know it would immediately yeah. take the attention off him i mean like yeah he, he never wanted the attention on him it was just like you're talking about something lead to him boom he was he was off onto something else uh, yeah Oh man, you know what? I could do 20 episodes talking about Charlie Watts. I mean, I adored the guy. I know uh, you did. I know. And and you could probably do 200 episodes. <laughs> well, we're going to do another one. We will. We'll do another one and okay. and, and talk, you know, cuz I we're we're kind of running out of time now, but I I want to and we're going to do another one where we can really get into Hal and some of these other, you know, close friends that you have. Um, I know you were very close with Hal. Maybe tell a quick Hal story. Okay. If, if you, you probably have a million, but okay. it, you know, any any great Hal anecdote would be great. Like, let's see. I mean, Hal was a walking anecdote machine. Yeah. Okay, so they are they're they're just endless. I mean, Hal could just like <laughs> yeah. So okay, probably one of the most significant. Uh, I brokered the sale of one of his monster sets right and in uh there were two of them and in that process i brought the guy who bought it to uh palm desert where uh, hal lived 
and uh, and so they could meet. It was kind of part of the deal that they could meet, and then uh, we uh, went and got the drums from there. So um, the the deal was. Uh, Hal was going to pick us up at the airport. I'd call him when uh, we got in. He'd come pick us up at the airport. So I call when the thing lands and, uh, uh, yep, there you go. Uh, And I call and he said, hey, you know, I got a flat, excuse me, I got a flat tire. And um, so how about if you guys get a cab out to where I am on the side of the road? I've got a uh, tow truck on the way. And we're going to tow my car back to the Cadillac dealership uh, where uh, he'd get his tire fixed. Um, you know, Hal Blaine, he's not going to, like, didn't change his tire. That's how we're going to solve this uh, scenario. So, um, uh, uh, you know, we go through this whole thing, go out there, go in the tow truck back to the Cadillac dealership. It's a Saturday. And talk about anecdote machine. Walk in the door. Oh, hi, Hal. Oh, and then she said, hi, darling. You know, it, you know, he'd start talking to him and he'd work, you know, as he, he would do. He wouldn't tell a joke. He would he would always call them stories. He would just work it in and he'd be just flirting with, uh, you know, one of the receptions, receptionists. And he'd slide one of his jokes in and crack everybody up. And then, of course, everyone's coming out saying, oh, hello, Mr. Blaine. Great to see you. Thank. And, and they're saying, hey, uh, Mr. Blaine, we are so sorry, but it is Saturday. We are packed busy. It's going to take about two hours before we can get your tire changed. So it's like, oh, OK, well, we'll, we'll just go wait in the waiting room. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know. I just got to Palm Desert. I'm ready to go. And it's like, okay, now we're going to sit in the waiting room for two hours. So get in there, sit down with some couches, coffee. And on the music, they're playing like an oldie station. Okay. And every song he played on, you know, maybe it wasn't every, it was probably 95%. Yeah. yeah, So (laughs) for two solid hours, Song comes on. Hal has a story. Story lasts about, you know, two or three minutes. Story's winding down. The next song comes on. He's got a story, you know. Who was at that session? How, you know, they maybe the song started out like this. Then somebody came up with this idea. And, and you know, it was, it was kind of a uh, also ran song turned into a number one. Because, you know, again, kind of like Keiko. One story after the next. Two solid hours, you know. Me and the guy who was buying the set were just like wow. spellbound, and we could we could have stayed for there for the whole three days. Um, anyway, and yeah, and and of course, he was just scratching the surface. Yeah. I mean, I I think I think I entered. I, I figured this out once um, when I introduced him for a clinic that that if you took all of his recordings and played them back to back, it would take, it was something like two and a half months to play every recording you ever did back to back. I mean, <laughs> think about it. These are I know. three minute songs, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, so he and was the, just barely scratching the surface. And, and as you pointed out too, cause I remember doing that, like, um, 
sitting there like listening to it like the what we call the oldie station which is kind of the stuff yeah. from the 60s mainly and 70s you wouldn't really call it classic rock but but just counting one after another like the beach boys um this this um gary puckett the union gap the the carpenters um yeah i mean all those bands you know right one after another and it's hell it's just it's the wrecking crew it's hell and uh and and what a what an awesome opportunity to sit there and have him because i'd never sat there that long and had him really kind of talk about all those recordings you right know, and, that's, you know and it was just perfect and we couldn't have made that situation happen wow. and you know each song is about the length of the story and it just boom boom they just dovetailed one into the next now did you ever know pam jacobs yes sure of course yeah okay so she was very Sweetheart. close with hal yeah so of course i'm telling her my big story and she's like well oh, you know that's really good and everything but you know one time Hal and I drove across the country. And so she had, she literally drove across the country with Hal, with the old oldies station on and got that for what, you know, five, six days. Oh my okay. God. Yeah, so. Wow. I never knew that. I, I, I know yeah. Pam too. I'd never heard that story. Wow. Yeah. Oh, you know, man. just when I thought I had a good story, yeah, she she major <laughs> one up to me. <laughs> Yours is pretty good, Don. Yours is pretty good. I have to tell oh. you one more thing. I, I wanted to tell you this at the beginning, um, and and not that I should thank you for it, but I will because you're my pal. But um, you helped out a very good friend of mine, Stan Lynch, recently. Oh yeah, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers drummer, and I just you can talk about that. But I just want to set it up by saying, um, Stan had reached out to Greg Bissonette and myself, and and said. I'm looking to, you know, sell my my original Tama Imperial Star kit that I used on all the Heartbreaker records and as you well know the story and uh and Greg and I both independently it, on, on different responses said Don Bennett's your guy, you know, and awesome. and and yeah, and and you guys got together and the kit sold pretty quickly, right? It seemed like yeah. it, you didn't yeah. have to, have to have it for too long, so Oh, you know, that was a great and you know you know how fun Stan is yeah. to talk to. You know, I've yet to meet him. And actually, I'm going to meet him here in a few days. Oh, He's great. playing here in Seattle with the Dirty Knobs. Yes. And I think it's even like it's in a club. And they are then going to join the uh, Chris Stapleton tour, yeah. you know, which is like a a stadium tour. Yeah. But the Dirty Knobs are going to do a... Uh, a uh, a club show in a place called the Crocodile Cafe, which is kind of like that's like the birthplace of grunge music in Seattle. So very historical club, you know. Yeah. Nirvana, Soundgarden, everybody played there. Um anyway, so I'll I you know, he's one of those guys who I feel like is one of my old pals, but I've never met him. Um, but we just have these awesome conversations and uh, man, what a fun guy yeah. what a what a mega musical genius yeah you know i think i think you know most people know stan as this amazing drummer in tom petty i mean all those songs that he did um but you know you're again you're scratching the surface i mean that i mean he produced boys of summer i know uh, and, yeah. and wrote wrote and produced up uh, I can't remember if he wrote the whole thing, but you know he's an amazing songwriter, amazing musician, 
Great, um, yeah, great producer. You're right. The the record after that, End of the Innocence, he did. Um, he, pl- I think he played in the song Heart of the Matter, and he, I think he produced the whole record, and and uh, yeah, and he's and he's done a bunch of other production, and oh, it just yeah. it's, I mean, like he great said, um, uh, oh, we had a long conversation, but you know, him leaving Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, which would be like you know that. Most people consider that the mega pinnacle of a career. He said that was just the getting off point. I mean, his yeah. career is just like skyrocketed from there. He, I mean, the, the guy is, I mean, the guy is such a genius, but I always joke with him. And I will make this brief because I, mean, I can go on and on. So, <laughs> you know, I get to work with a lot of geniuses, and it's really one of the most fascinating, fun things about what i do i mean so many of the people that i work with are just these absolutely brilliant people but um and it's not a bad thing but if there's one thing i've noticed anyone who got like a couple of extra scoops in one department (laughs) they usually come up a little short in another department um and i know you know what i'm talking about and it's it's not a it's not a bad thing it's not a bad thing at all (laughs) so it's what makes people interesting Anyway, <laughs> I sell uh, Stan a old Lud- I don't know if you can see that, you know, like a Ludwig flat face symbol stand because mm. he's putting together. He wanted to have a, a complete vintage Ludwig set. Yeah. And so the, uh, the one missing link was a flat face symbol stand. And okay, here's some drum geeking. Uh, when you fold those things up and you collapse them, the the middle tube sticks out the bottom yeah i have right? some of these okay yeah, so you know what i'm talking about yeah. when you click yep okay send it to me you know i'm telling you, yeah man i find you a really nice one okay it's like it's it's perfect you're it's it, yeah you're not gonna find a better one than this <laughs> get set um i get his phone call uh don um yeah now you told me that this was a really nice symbol stand okay well i want you to i want to show you you can't set this thing up because, uh, you know, Don, I'm not saying you didn't pack it right, but I can't see how this could have been damaged like this and ship it. Okay. So, cause the bottom is sticking out of the bottom. So you, it, it, you can't, you put out the legs and it won't sit. Uh, Stan, um, try loosening that wing nut and pulling that up. And he's kind of like, Oh, okay. Uh, Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) I could see him. Yeah. 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 It's so, so look, if, if I got nothing else out of the entire relationship, if I just got that story, that would be worth it. Yeah. I always give him (laughs) shit about it every time I see him and we always have a great laugh about it. Oh, that's Uh, great. Cause he's, he's like one of those, he's so self-effacing, you know what I mean? He's yes. Yes. I could, I could see him going, yeah, and I'm such a knucklehead. I don't know how to. Right. Yeah, I thought I could set up a symbol stand, but I can't apparently. You know, <laughs> he's he's you know, so hilarious, man. He's you know, oh. he's got you know, and he's you know, you talk about self-effacing. He's saying you know the whole time with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, he just said, "Look, we are a bunch of knuckleheads. We didn't know what the hell we were doing." I know. Um, and he, you know what he said? He said that band has never rehearsed. They 
they go in the studio and they start working. They start yeah. putting, yeah. they, they, he said they never rehearsed. They just do it. And they just, you know, it starts out not sounding very good. And they keep hacking away at it until they have these masterpieces. I know. Um, I, I, he, I, I remember hearing that too. I, I had him about two years ago and we talked about a lot of this stuff. And he, I, I assume that so much of the early stuff anyway, like when bands were hungry, you kind of had to go in the studio with the stuff all written. But he said the same thing. He said, no, we'd go in and, and you know, we had this idea for, you know, American Girl and it was this way. And I decided to play the Bo Diddley beat and it just evolved into this thing. And it's like, it's amazing that they did that in the studio, you know, like that, but that's, I think that's, that was their process, right? I mean, that's how they, yeah. That's yeah. That's what how, yeah. They, they but he just said, you know, we're a bunch of guys from, you know, deep, deep Florida. Yeah, didn't know yeah. what the hell we were doing and, you know, and, but it just managed to make it happen. It's magic. So, it sure is. Yeah. Uh, with him, with the dirty knobs, you know, so Mike Campbell is the yeah. guitar player in that band. So it's really, I mean, this is kind of historic. This is the first time they played together since 1994 when he left, uh, yeah. when he left uh, Tom Petty. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm going to go see them, you know, in a club. And if I know, I'll be like right smack on the edge of the stage. And I've never, I've seen, well, I've obviously never seen him play in a club. You know, I mm-hmm. saw him once back in the day, you know, at a, at a stadium. And blew my mind. I mean, have you ever seen yeah, Tom Petty yeah, and the Heartbreakers when he was with him? I saw him a few, probably three or four times with Stan, and a couple times with Ferroni. At least, at least four times with Stan from the late '80s to the early '90s. Um, um, great. Yeah, I, I saw one of each, and quite frankly, Tom Petty with Steve Ferroni is also a amazing thing. Absolutely, I mean, just mind blowing band. Um, and it was mind blowing uh, with Stan. Um, anyway, so I, I'm very excited to go and see them in a club. Uh, I heard a little bit of Mike Campbell's album, and it's like, wow, the Mike Campbell influence on Tom Petty mm. is dramatic. I mean, yeah. yeah, it is. It is so similar. I mean, there's so I, I never, you know, you just hear these songs, you think that's Tom Petty, uh, but. Uh, Mike Campbell clearly brought a tremendous amount to that band. Absolutely, yeah. I, I know. I early in the early days, I I just I just didn't. I thought it was really Tom Petty that was the sort of, and and he certainly was. But but as you say, you you realize how much Mike's guitar playing and how much his influence yeah. came into their sound and and uh, and I'm so envious of you, Don. I'm so happy for you. I, I wish they were playing when Stan told me about this run that it was going to be basically the Northwest. Um, um, they did some dates in Florida, uh, last week or the week before, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I'm bummed. They're not going to be out this way with, with Stan. But yeah, this, this summer is, is he going to continue doing it? I don't Um, think so. I think he's just subbing for Matt Logg, who's the kind of regular drummer for for Mike's band. Yeah. For the, okay. Cause I, I saw Chris Stapleton and the Dirty Knobs opening, Mm. uh, are coming back and they're playing like the gorge amphitheater huge place um so maybe or maybe that's good he won't be with them at that he, point he, I he might not be or he I, I don't know i i um i know that this is kind of a limited run at least initially that he's doing but i don't know if i i think it's matt's gig so i he's 
Mike's probably okay. going to honor that, you know. Um, maybe not. Who knows? We'll find out soon enough. But yeah, yeah. to uh, I'm very excited to see that. Yeah. So so for people to to check out your website, um, you know, we still haven't talked about this Charlie Watts thing. Oh, all right. Go ahead. Go right. go go. <laughs> okay. So when Charlie died, it kind of hit me just deeply. And, and once I figured it out, I just realized that I have never not had Charlie Watts and the Rolling Stones in my world. It's just like, they're, they're like the, uh, you know, they're like, they're permanent. Yeah. And all of a sudden that was gone. I mean, and it was like, it just, I didn't get it. You know, it's just like, it, it wasn't registering uh, anyway. So that was, that was just really, it's kind of really rattled my foundation. Um, you know, it's, and again, it, you know, it's not like it was my father or something like that, but uh, it was just, uh, that was a fundamental part of my life. And I'm sure a lot of other people's lives. So, um, you know, when he passed, there's all these great tributes and everyone had so many great things to say, which as I'm sure you heard, there was not one, I did not care one single millimeter of anybody ever having anything bad to say about him. No. My experience with him, he was, I mean, he was completely genuine. He was always amazing. I mean, yeah. talk yeah. about stories. All Charlie would have to do would be to like come in the room and do something and he would just do I mean, every time I saw him, he would raise the bar of amazingness. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, he would do something else so Charlie Watts like that it would just blow the last one out of the water. So I mean, I just you yeah, know it was kind of one with age. He really he just got like yeah. cooler and hipper and funnier and uh, better. Yeah, it's yeah. uh, it's uh. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was just amazing. I was, I was always, I so you know, Don McCauley, his tech. Yeah. I would. Great, great Don. He, great guy Don. He, it. Oh, are you kidding me? Uh, he would. It sort of became his job to on off times, uh, uh, or you know, off. You know, when they had a break on a, on a tour, to go out and find something cool to do with Charlie. Uh, and it also would include uh, Charlie's granddaughter, daughter, yeah. uh, Charlotte, Charlotte. Um, so Don would, uh, you know, and, and Don was always very, very respectful of Charlie's privacy because Charlie is very private. Um, so, you know, because he was, I understood that, you know, I would get sort of the reader's digest version of these adventures, but I mean, can you imagine having that part of your job is like go off and do cool shit with Charlie Watts? <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, find some cool shit to do with Charlie Watts and go and do it and yeah, and blow your mind. Anyway, yeah. So getting me back to where I was uh, I was talking about, um, Charlie Watts could just come in the room and just be Charlie and just do amazing stuff. So Again, I could go on forever. Um, so 
when Charlie passed, there were all these great tributes and, and I felt like I wanted to do something, but nothing was coming to my mind. And so just a few days ago, the idea came that to me, I don't think there is a drummer, let alone musician, maybe even person who cannot say they were positively influenced by Charlie Watts and the Rolling Stones and you know what Charlie and what he did with the Rolling Stone. I mean, I would challenge anybody to to I would challenge that argument. Tell yeah. anybody tell me how they <clears throat> have existed in this world and not been affected by the Rolling Stones and Charlie Watts. So I'm thinking, you know, how how can I show my respect, my appreciation? So it just dawned on me that, so most people know, but since like, I don't know, early 70s, Charlie Watts, can you, let's see, can you see it up oh, there? Yeah, I can Charlie see Watts, yeah. has, and you can see it back there in John's drum sets back there. Charlie Watts always kept his tuning key right up here, right here on this lug. And there it's at. Look at, look at any picture of Charlie Watts playing, and there it is. So I had this goofy idea. How about if, well, start with me, that I will, I'm going to put my key up there and it's going to sit there all the time. And that's my way of showing my respect for Charlie. And as I'm sitting there playing my drums, um, out of the corner of my eye, I'm going to see that key there. And he's just going to kind of bring him back into my mind while I'm playing. So from there, I thought, you know, why don't I invite every drummer who has been positively affected by Charlie and, you know, respected Charlie to show his their appreciation by simply when they play the drums, just put your key up there. And any drummer that walks in the room that the show you're at, they look up there, they see your key there. And they know you appreciate Charlie Watts. Uh, and if they don't know and they ask you, how come you how can you put your key up there? Then you can explain. Whoops. Lost, lost the gold record there. <laughs> ah, there you, <laughs> um, you can explain. Um, uh, you can explain who Charlie Watts was and why he was so important. So what. I want to invite every drummer to do is on Charlie Watts birthday, June 2nd to take a picture or video of yourself, post a picture of you with the hashtag. Thanks Charlie. And then from now on, every time you play the drums, just put your key up there. And that's your way of letting the world know that you love and appreciate what Charlie Watts did for all of us. So that's great. Ha hashtag. Thanks, Charlie. Uh, and really, my hope is from here on out, every time any drummer I see on stage, there it is. I want to see uh, I want to see that key up there. And uh, and, you know, that's a, a little way of, you know, keeping the amazing stuff that Charlie Watts gave us of uh, keeping that going. That's great. I love it, Don. That's that's yeah. awesome. 
Yeah. Thank yep. you. It, it it's simple. You know, it I mean, that doesn't take much effort. Um and simple and effective. There you go. Look yeah. at Charlie. Look at him. I mean, is that is that like the coolest guy? I mean, look, look at that blazer. Look at just the look on his face. Yeah, man, the guy's crazy. I know. I know. I love that guy. Me too. I love him and I miss him. And uh, yeah, it's yeah. I, you know what? I that was. I started thinking. It's like, oh no, no more, no more Charlie Watts amazing experiences. No more amazing Charlie Watts stories. No more Charlie Watts like saying one word and blowing my mind. Um, anyway, uh, no more. As I'm sure you've done, no more standing in the row in front of the front row at a Rolling Stones concert. <laughs> Just watching this unfold in front of me. Uh, I mean, you talk about a major life experience. Have you have you ever seen the Stones like right up on the edge of the stage? I have, yeah, a few times. You know, it, the wa- watching them and the. Uh, the visual cues going back and forth that are just like, uh, you know, it's just like, it could be a glance, but being that close to the Rolling Stones and watch them maneuver this machine um, with just a glance from Keith Richards across the stage to Ronnie Wood or, or just the tiniest little thing that uh, uh, Keith will nod to Charlie and the whole thing shifts um, yeah, watching yeah. that play out, uh, <clears throat> just like blowing my mind. You know what? Have have uh, all those things? Yeah. Have, have you ever heard? You know, Don McCauley told me about this. They call it the red zone, and it's the space between Charlie and Keith's amp. Yes, yes. And that's, I mean, that's where this absolute magic that is the Rolling Stones occurs. Is that? that interplay between the two of them. And there is the coveted red zone that, and so there's a handful of people in the world that have ever sat there. So Don McCauley has sat there and experienced it. Um, Jim Keltner has sat there and experienced it. Um, You know, he told me about that, you know, and again, I dreamed Oh my God, someday I'm going to sit in the red zone and, and feel that. I mean, what I was telling you about what it was like at the front of the stage was probably like a zillimeter of what it was like in the zone. So, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, it's maybe it's better. It didn't happen. Something I can dream of. And, and, you know, dreams are a good thing to have. Keep you looking forward. Exactly. No, I, I've, I, the first time I saw, the first time I met Charlie, uh, it wasn't the first time I'd seen the band. In 97, I saw them in New Jersey, and I watched a good part of it from from basically, um, not side stage, but kind of behind Charlie, off to the kind of where um, where Chooch McGee was at the time. And uh, and that was... Probably probably a seat that the person you're with saying, these seats suck, they're behind the stage, and you're like oh, eating it up. Right? Yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. I, I remember Dan Aykroyd and his two sons came up before the show, and they... They came up and, and like, it was like they knew all the guys in the band. It was funny. They come walking up and Dan Aykroyd puts his hand out. And he goes, how you doing? Danny Aykroyd. And I'm like, 
I, I, you know, I know who you are. Really? His kids, his <laughs> kids introduced themselves. They're like the nicest group. And then Chooch is like, I'm going to have you stay here. You know, you can stay here for the first bit. And then, you know, if you want, I, I can, I can get you, there's a seat out by the mixer, by the soundboard. And they had the second stage in those days. So, so at some point I did make my way out there in time for them to come out to that kind of, you know, B stage, which is pretty cool to be like right underneath that yes, when they were, I've been right there too. Remember that? Yeah. But, uh, but that was, I mean, you know, it was probably my fifth or sixth or seventh time seeing the band, but first time meeting Charlie and here I am like, and he sort of, you know, glanced back and smiled a couple of times and I'm, you know, and I had only just met him that afternoon and it was like, and that was the beginning, um, you know, this incredible ride, no. I call it, you know, with him and, um, but we're going to do this again, Don, because I would love to just, you and I just share some stories and, uh, and we'll do it soon. You know, we'll, you know, we'll maybe, uh, maybe there could be some Moe red label, uh, like interjected it. into that conversation. I like it. Yeah, that's great. If you don't mind, you're three hours earlier, so it could be, you know, it, it, it could be a little late. Hey, um, <laughs> you know, if if I had to, you know, pre noon, if I had to pre noon it for you, yeah, I, I'm I'm all I'm all I, over it. I appreciate you, buddy. Thank you. Well, now, this has been now, this is wait so awesome. So, are we still recording? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah. good. Um, so. You've got to have a good Charlie. You know what? I should tell you one Charlie Watts story because it's relevant to what we've been talking about here. Yeah. I mean, again, Charlie Watts was a story machine. You just had to walk in the room and just be there. And that would, I mean, really, that was Absolutely. enough to be an amazing story. Yeah. yeah. So around 2005, uh, I got a call. This is after the Elvin conversation had begun. Yeah. Uh, I got a call. Uh, I got a call from his tech, Mike Cormier. Remember, yeah, that's the one before Don McCall. Yeah. And he tells me that, you know, uh, Charlie would like to come to your shop. Um, would that be all right? Uh, no, actually, that came later to when Charlie Watts called and said, said Don, I'd, I'd like to come visit your shop when we're in town. Um, would that be all right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, <laughs> yeah i i think that's gonna be all right you know I, I think i think that'll be christmas eve and my wife will be giving birth but yeah you know i think <laughs> I, i'm I'm gonna make that i'm gonna make that i'm gonna make work. that happen yeah anyway oh my um, god he says look charlie has one drum key and it's the only key that he'll use he loves this key and he just it's yeah. there's nothing really special about it, but I just, he has this one, you know what I'm talking about? I do. Uh, yeah. And, uh, but he just really likes it. And you know, I'm afraid it's going to get lost. And so I'm trying to find one of them. And, and, and he said, you know, can you help me find one? And I said, sure. I mean, how hard could that be? So this is back in the day. So he literally took Charlie's key stuck it in the fax machine and faxed me an image of his key. So I know which one to look. Yeah, yeah. So I had that and I didn't have one at the time, but you know, a drum shop, I knew one's going to turn up sooner or later. So uh, when they get there and then this, I think this is like 2005. Um, and when Charlie came, he hung out in my store for like three hours. Uh, uh, and 
how cool is that? So he's milling around the, the shop and he's just digging it and seeing the, the old famous drums. And I mean, there's, you know, there were all these signed drum heads, you know, maybe a hundred of them throughout the store. He went and read every one and he would have a story about each guy. And so, oh, Steve Smith, you know, uh, you know I met him, blah, blah. And he, he oh, that's so great. It's just insane. Yeah. Anyway, so he's milling around. <laughs> Um, at one point, I'm talking to Mike, Charlie's check, and he says to me, um, you know, were you able to find that drum key? And um, I said, no, you know, I haven't been able to find one yet, but I know I can find one. It won't be that hard. I, I, I will definitely get you one, but I just don't have one. And Charlie kind of overhears this, and he goes, well, uh, um, what are you guys talking about? What what drum key? And so Mike says, well, you know, uh, your drum key, you know, I'm, I'm afraid, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I just thought it would be good to have a backup for it, you know, and, and Charlie looks at him kind of puzzled and, and even maybe a little bit irritated. And he goes, but I already have one. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, here, as, as you well know, you know, most touring <laughs> bands that are out there, I mean, drummers got a 10 piece drum kit and every piece yeah. in triple kit, right? Yes. <laughs> and you know, he calls you up, yeah, I need 40 symbols for this tour. Okay, here's Charlie with his little four piece <laughs> kit and he cannot really fathom why or why should I need another drum key? I've got one, it's right there. <laughs> Uh, that's outstanding anyway so that that story is part of what led to this whole yes. idea yeah. it's great no it's great and I, I i just want to tell you this it's it's what you said is right in line with when i was working retail in the early 80s being a you know a kid you know 19 20 year old kid obsessed with charlie and remember talking to the gretch rep who, you know, Charlie never really had an official endorsement with Gretsch. As right. we know, he bought all his drums and he let them use his picture in their catalogs. But he wasn't really an, a, a signed endorser, so to speak. But but I remember the rep telling me that Gretsch had made contact with the Stones office, you know, through you know to Charlie via their office and wanted to send him some new drums. This would have been in the early 80s. And I think when they were trying to get their tech wear off the ground and all that. And his answer was, this is what the rep, the Gretsch rep told me was, Charlie's answer was, but I've already got a drum set. I don't, you know, <laughs> they're like, we'll give you, and this is for Gretsch in those days to give somebody a free set of drums. It's probably right. Tony Williams, right? Harvey Mason. And that's probably it in those days. Phil Collins is going to get a free drum set. Everybody else is going to pay for him. And, uh, and, and Charlie's answer oh, was, but the same thing. Yeah, I've I've already got one. I don't need any more drums. I've got I've got one. <laughs> oh well, that makes my story even cooler because yeah. it, uh, oh my god, I'm glad you told uh, me that. That's terrible. Uh, oh, Don, this has been a blast, man. We're going to do it again. I'm going to be in touch um, because we we have only really just just scraped the surface here. So scratch the surface whatever the uh, the saying is and there's my friend rick Morata calling me right on cue rick Morata. yeah hey that. man how you doing <laughs> you know i we've met um but and then of course i always get him and his brother confused um i can never remember which one it was that i was talking to with 
Okay. Well, I, I love to confuse the two of them on purpose. You know, I, I <laughs> oh, do. Okay. I'll, I'll say to Rick, you know, I loved your work with, with uh, Orleans or, you know, or, I don't know, any one of the bands that Jerry's played with and, and, and vice versa, because it's, it's just fun to, to mess just with them. But of rattling yeah. their cage. Yeah. Hey, you but know I what? Want, yeah. Why don't you come out here and we'll do one of your drum rooms from here? I should do that. Yeah. yeah I, when was I the last time you were on the West Coast? <sighs> I haven't been up in Seattle probably since I last saw you at your shop in 2000. No, I think I might have been up that way in 2012, but 10 years at least. I, I you used know to what? go out to LA all the time still. but um, If you come to Seattle, I will line up a bunch of drummers and and we'll make it insane. We'll make it, we'll make okay. the most epic episode that you've ever had okay i love um, this idea yeah michael um, shreve lives in town right oh yeah yeah um alan white uh alan um is matt mike derosier mike derosier matt, love- matt chamberlain is in la but he comes Oof. back and forth yeah. um but you know there's uh there's a lot of guys who live in la and around that are routinely here chad smith is here pretty often yeah um yeah. Matt, Matt okay. Cameron still lives up that way, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, Great. Okay. You know, I, and again, one of the, I mean, just what we're talking about, how fortunate was I having a drum shop and all these amazing drummers are right here in my town. I mean, really, I was, in, I was in a little suburb of Seattle. I'm not in LA. I'm not in New York. I'm not in Chicago. And there's just like a whole cast of like some of the greatest drummers that ever lived you know, within 15 minutes. I mean, that's pretty great. Yeah, uh, it's pretty great. I, I could go on and on. I was going to say, I can go on and on. I have kind of gone on and on here. <laughs> that's all right, Don. It's been, it's I get the guys awesome. in, in modern drummer to be, I will cut that part out. We'll cut that. No, part no, out. no, no, no. Don't this need be, that whole part. This will be a, a bonus episode for Charlie's birthday and your birthday too. So oh, yeah. Yes. Our birthdays. Yeah. And don't forget Vic Firth and the queen. And the queen. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, thank you so much for watching. A giant hand from my buddy, Don Bennett, everybody. Johnny G. Johnny G. Oh, man. So good to see you, buddy. Oh, man. Uh, Me too. And I'm I'm serious. you got to come out here. Uh, Now, you you spent a lot of time in Martha's Vineyard, right? In the summer, yeah. We'll be down there for quite a bit of the summer. So, yeah. So, when I sold the shop, are we off? We're off now? No, we're still live. Well, 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 we can... Oh, we're gonna, fine, we're gonna say fine. goodbye, everybody, and we're gonna talk about other stuff. Okay. <laughs> but I want to thank yeah, everybody I, for watching. <laughs> and I uh, gotta be careful what I say. <laughs> All right. Thanks for watching. Big hand for Don Bennett, everybody. This show hey. will, will drop on June 2nd, so check it out on moderndrummer.com. And John, really, thank you very much for having me. And anybody who's watching, uh, and anybody who's going to be watching, thank you for being here and uh, letting me. Occupy your time. <laughs> Absolutely. Letting this us occupy your time. I, I haven't Absolutely. had this much fun in a while. I, I always have fun doing these, but this this one is a hoot. So thank you. Oh, for making good. It so fun. Good. Thanks, well, that, you just made my day. All that energy. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna end the stream. Say goodbye to everybody. Sit Bye, tight. Everybody. Don, and uh see you soon, everybody. <laughs>